1999, uh, reporters in Sweden were doing a special feature uh, about looting and archaeological artifacts. And they had two professors that they were using as, uh, as consultants on the project. And they were going over a certain archaeological site, uh, a certain field, and uh, after the crew finished filming, the professors decided to use their metal, metal, metal detector to sweep the field uh, to see what might be there. And as they went through this field, this, this farmland, uh, something strange happened. The machine read overload and shut off. And so the professors said, well, that's, that's strange. And they ordered an archaeological dig uh, instantly. Uh, and at that site, in that farmland, uh, the greatest stash of Viking silver in history, called the Spillings Hoard, was discovered. It consisted of hundreds of pounds of jewelry and other silver artifacts worth millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, from 1,100 years ago. Amazing, right? Just by chance. That's an exciting story, right? We, we like movies like, uh, you know, National Treasure and, um, you know, the Goonies, right? We love movies about hidden treasure. It's thrilling stuff. But, but at the same time, it's, it's almost tragic, isn't it? Those Vikings, centuries ago, buried that treasure and never saw it again. They died, and their treasure was just there in the mud of Sweden, right? For centuries. Now, you and I today, we don't wear horns, you know, with you know, helmets and swords and furs, and we don't sail the coasts in uh, longboats, pillaging and sacking villages. But we do something that those Vikings did. A modern man, as civilized as we are, we still seek to store up wealth and make this life the most comfortable one we can. Right? Modern people generally make this existence, right, this life on earth, the most important thing. The end-all be-all. Right, the thing that really matters. This, of course, was true even before the Vikings, in Jesus' day. And in fact, in our text this morning, Jesus is going to speak directly to this very issue. Where are you hiding your treasure? What is your treasure? And what does your treasure reveal about you? Let's look at our text, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Jesus teaches us this. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our God and our King, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken in the pages of Scripture handed down through the ages that your people may have a record of your revelation to us. Father, we thank you for the teaching of Jesus this morning. Lord, truly it is necessary for us to hear his words as we consider what it means for us to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
And Lord, we need your help in that. Lord, we so often have our own way. We so often approach this life on our own terms. But Lord, if we are Christians, if we belong to Christ, if we are his disciples, Lord, then our calling is to live this life and view it as you would have us do so. And so, Lord, we pray for your help, not just in hearing the words of Christ, but in doing them. Lord, would you expose those areas in our hearts where we treasure this world more than our life in the next? Would you show us those places and convict us of sin, Lord, where we have served other masters besides you? And Lord, I pray for your help. Holy Spirit, would you help me to preach only what is true and consistent with your words, with the inspired text of Scripture? Be glorified. May your people be helped. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jesus continues teaching his disciples here. In the past few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' teaching on religious practice, right? Acts like uh, fasting, giving, praying, and how when we do those things, we should not do them for the approval of man, but for the approval of God, right? We should do it as uh, something between us and God. And Jesus told us three times in the preceding verses that when we do those things with a sincere heart, for God's eyes only, uh, that our Father who sees in secret will reward us, right? Jesus says that three times in the preceding section. And Jesus, in a way, is kind of continuing that discussion as he begins to talk about treasure, right? The treasure of the believer. And now there's three main ideas here, three topics that Jesus gives us in this text. The first is your treasure and your heart, verses 19 and 21. The second is your treasure and your eye, 22 and 23. And finally, your treasure and your master, verse 24. We'll be starting with this first point, verses 19 and 21. Asking the question, what are the rewards and treasures that God's people should seek? Now Jesus begins by giving us a very clear prohibition in verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. It's about as black and white as you can get, right? And now this is the natural tendency of people. This is just what people do, right? We want to work hard. We want to be successful. We want to be able to enjoy the things uh, that this world has, right? That life has to offer. If I were to ask you, would you rather be homeless or live in a mansion? I, I don't think you would choose being homeless, right? There's just the natural tendency to want to be comfortable. Now, it's not wrong if God blesses you with a comfortable life or with enjoyable possessions or wealth, right? In God's sovereignty, he does give some more than others. That's just reality. But that's not what Jesus is describing here. Jesus is describing the hoarding of material possessions, storing up, laying up treasure for yourselves on earth. Right? This, is, this is speaking about the person whose belongings are what are most important to them. Now, The phrase treasure on earth in 19 describes both the location and the kind of treasure. Right? This is... Uh, physical material belongings that exist on this planet and in this life only. Money, your house, right? your toys, your cars, your photographs, your cell phone, video games, your heirlooms, whatever it is, the things of this life. Now, in Jesus' day, there was no Wells Fargo. Right? There, there weren't really safe deposit boxes for people to use. Most people would hide their prized possessions, sometimes in, in chests, sometimes in vases, uh, most commonly in a hole dug in the floor, right? buried treasure. Um, you, you know, in our, our modern-day equivalent, think of your eccentric relative who stuffs their mattress with cash, right? That's kind of what people would do back then. 
They didn't have anywhere else to put their belongings. They would literally store up their possessions to keep them safe. And, and the fact that they need to be kept safe gets at the fundamental reason that Jesus says his disciples should not prioritize earthly treasures. Now look at the end of verse 19. They just don't last, right? They're liable to moths, rust, thieves. They can be stolen, they break down, they corrupt. They just never last. Uh, in Jesus' day, the wealthy Jewish class would value their fancy clothes, right? That was a prized possession for them. Uh, but they didn't have cedar cabinets to put them in, and the moths would come in and destroy those garments. Thieves could easily break into your house, dig around your floor, and, and find the few coins that you may have in, 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 the, in the hole there. There were a lot of ways that earthly treasures could be ruined, removed, and the same is true in our day too. Right? Your house could catch on fire without notice. Right? We're, we're sitting here. Right? Anything could happen. Right? Your car could get totaled without notice. Right? Your, your company you work for goes down the tubes. Right? You work for Enron and your retirement is wiped out. The same thing can happen today. The goods of this world just don't last. That's Jesus' point here. And not only that, but the reality is that each one of us will die. Let's say you make it to the end of life and you've just amassed massive amounts of wealth for yourself. You will die. And you cannot take it with you. Jesus tells a parable in Luke's Gospel that illustrates this well. Turn uh, just a couple books over to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Looking at verse 16. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. You know, we'll actually start in verse Let's start in verse 13. Let's just get the whole, the whole section here. Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This rich man stored up earthly treasures, right? He even had to expand his barn to fit in all of his goods, all of his grain, all of his wealth. And he thought that that would provide security for him. He said, now I can kick back. I can retire, right? I can just, I can just enjoy what I have worked for my whole life, right? That's what his focus was on, enjoying this life. But when it was his time to die, he's rebuked. Since all of the wealth, all of his possessions did absolutely nothing for his soul. God even asked the man the question in the parable, all these things, whose will they be? In other words, they're not going to be yours. You can't take them with you. They're just going to be passed on to someone else. 
Now, while God certainly may bless a person abundantly with possessions, right? Uh, there is no true or lasting or eternal value to them. You cannot take them with you when you die. Somebody else will simply take them. And then when that person dies, on and on and on and on. As Psalm 62.10 says, If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes it well. He says that as Christians, we must realize something. All that we have is not really ours. It's God's. It's given to us on a lease. Material possessions were never intended to be what man lives for. And Jesus instructs us accordingly here. He says, do not store up for yourself earthly possessions as the chief end of life. In the next verse, Jesus instructs us to pursue the things which really are of ultimate value in the kingdom of heaven. Look what he says in verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. Again, this refers to the quality and location of the treasure. It is found ultimately in heaven, and it is heavenly in quality. In other words, heavenly treasure is that which God views as ultimately valuable. But what does Jesus mean when he, when he says this? Are there literally treasure chests in heaven waiting for us, right? Sometimes you'll talk to people and, and you hear things like, well, that person's going to have a really big house in heaven, right? Because so on and so forth, right? And this person, maybe they'll just have a little, you know, mother-in-law quarters or something like that. Is Jesus talking about something like that? Are you going to have a big bank account in heaven that you can, right, go to the, uh, the spiritual grocery store with? Well, certainly not, right? The Bible never gives us a clear and explicit picture of what heavenly rewards are beyond enter into the joy of your master. Well done, faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. That's about all we see. Heavenly reward is not more stuff in heaven, right? That's just taking earthly treasure to heaven. That's taking the same idea to heaven with you. It is completely different. At its core, heavenly treasure is commendation and approval from God, from our Master, from Christ. And this kind of treasure is very different than earthly treasure. Uh, look what Jesus says. There are no moths. There is no rust. There are no thieves that can touch treasure in heaven. It's of a completely different quality. It is absolutely secure and kept safe by God Himself. First uh, Peter 1.4 tells us that uh, when a person believes in Christ, they receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the opposite of every material possession you could have on earth. It is perishable. It can be defiled. And it does fade. But heavenly treasure, that is not so. And it is kept safe and secure in God's presence Himself. Right? There is literally nowhere safer than heaven's vault. And we know how to store up earthly treasures. We're probably too good at it sometimes. But how do we store up heavenly treasures? How do we do it? Jesus tells us here. Heaven is, right, somewhere, right? It's a spiritual realm. And we're here. How do we store up heavenly treasures? Well, we are given every spiritual blessing in Christ when we are saved, Ephesians 1, but we do store up heavenly treasures by good works done for God's glory. Right? That's how we accumulate heavenly treasures, good works done for God's glory. Now, the Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, it's Good to turn there, I think. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Why don't you turn there and we'll read what 
the Apostle Paul writes for us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul writes this, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, in that day and age, there was a far bigger gap between the rich and the poor than there is today. There was no functional middle class like we have today, right? By the world standards, every one of, in this, uh, every one of us in this room are rich, right? We are, we are m just mind-blowingly wealthy compared to somebody living in a third world country. So we fall in this category, right? <laughs> we can't say, I'm not rich. Well, yes, we are. We are, really. And what does Paul say? He says, set our hopes not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who is the one that provides everything for us to begin with. But then he says, how can a rich person on earth become a rich person in heaven? Good works. He says, being generous and ready to share, using those things that God has given them for his glory and the benefit of others. That is how they store up treasure for themselves. That's what Paul tells us here. It's, it's a reversal, really. Do you see that? It's a reversal. It is by giving away our material possessions for others that we become rich from God's perspective. Uh, Spurgeon words it well. He says, whatever is given to the poor and to the Lord's cause is deposited in the bank of eternity. Now, Jesus tells us quite clearly that our efforts and the focus of our lives is not to amass wealth on earth, but to use the things God provides us to help others and glorify Him in doing good works. Right? Godliness should be our pursuit. 1 Timothy 6, 6-7 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. What's really valuable? It is godliness with contentment. Good works and godliness are the currency of heaven. One commentator has this great little phrase. He says, Christians should live in a state of blessed detachment from material things. Blessed detachment. When you are attached to something, you don't want to let it go, right? You're, you're like, no, I'm keeping that here. But blessed detachment is, is really, I think, what Jesus is illustrating here. You know, I would be blessed to give this to somebody else. In other words, the, the, the material possession itself is not what has a hold on our hearts. But we are glad to let it go for God's glory and to benefit another person. That's the economy of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus instructs us to pursue heavenly spiritual wealth, to be rich in good works. That's the call of the Christian. Now, is it selfish, right? This is a good question to think about. Is it selfish to want to pursue heavenly wealth, right? Is that a selfish thing to do? Well, Jesus tells us to do it. So I think we're safe, but the motivation is important, right? If we're saying, well, I want to be richer in heaven than this person or that, well, that's a problem. But if our heart is, if our intention, our purpose, and our goal is to bless other people and glorify God, and we do that knowing we will receive a heavenly reward for it, that's biblical. That is what Christ is telling us to do here. 
And in reality, what you and I treasure reveals our heart. Look at what Jesus says in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What does he mean by this? Well, to put it simply, what you store up for yourself is really what you love. It's really what you value. And what you love and value is what your heart dwells on and delights in. The things that you treasure are what have captured your heart. Now, biblically, right, the heart is not the squishy, feely part of ourself. That's how we think about it today. But biblically, the heart is the entire inner person. It's what you think. It's what you uh, feel. It's what you desire. It's what you plan. It's your affections, your thoughts, all those things, right? Everything going on inside you and me, that's what the Bible means when it uses that word heart. And what you treasure reveals the orientation of your entire inner person, right? All, all that's going on in there. And we could say it like this. Your treasure is like a map to your heart. Uh, pirates make maps to their treasure, but Jesus says our treasure is like a map to our heart. If you treasure earthly things, if you value the things of this world most, what does that reveal about your heart? It reveals that your heart is bound to this life, this earth, this world, and to the things that fill it. If you treasure heavenly things, then you are heavenly minded in contrast, and your heart is more concerned with heaven than this world. Where your heart is, or where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What do you treasure? Where is your heart? Uh, Spurgeon, again, has some wisdom for us. He says, if our best things are in heaven, our very best thoughts will fly in the same direction. But if our choicest possessions are of the earth, our heart will be earthbound. Now think about what Jesus is saying here. What you treasure is directly related to what you love. This is a litmus test of sorts. What do you treasure? Somebody looked at your life. They looked at your, your banking history, right? The receipts that you keep. They looked at how you used your time your possessions, what would they conclude about your heart? What would they conclude about your heart? Would they see somebody consumed with this life or somebody clearly living for the next? And what we treasure is also related to the way we see the world around us, the way we see those living in the world around us as well. Let's look at the next few verses, 22 and 23. Jesus begins to discuss your treasure and your eye. He says this, The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now these verses at first glance seem like they have nothing to do with our treasure. Right? They seem like they're just kind of this standalone section. What are these doing here? Uh, it's a little confusing. But when we consider the context and when we consider that it's sandwiched in between these two other statements about our treasure and money, uh, it seems pretty clear that there is a connection here. But we need to better understand the cultural understanding of the eye in Jesus' day. So in the ancient world, the eye was very important. It was a very important part of the body, just like it is today. But it was different in the sense that um, it was almost personified. It was almost personified. Um, one's eyes had a moral character to them in a, a figurative manner of speaking. Uh, for example, the eye is described as desiring things. Uh, Proverbs 27, 20, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. 
and never satisfy to the eyes of man. Job describes the eye as approving certain things. He says, when the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help. Second Peter describes the eye of false teachers as full of adultery. He says their eye is full of adultery, insatiable for sin. The eye in the ancient world was almost personified. It had a moral quality to it. It wasn't just a piece of meat in our heads. It was linked with the inner person. Not physiologically per se, but spiritually. Um, and so it's with that in mind that we must approach Jesus' words in verse 22 and 23 because they can be a little confusing, right? Jesus is not talking about anatomy. He is talking about uh, our spiritual physiology, we could say. So while it is true that our hearts are the source of our desires, our thoughts, our affections, our eyes connect our hearts with the world around us. Now, you cannot desire something you've never sensed before. And for most people, our sight is the dominant sense that we use, right? Now, speaking figuratively here, Jesus is addressing how we see the world. How do our eyes perceive the things in this world? Two people can look at the same thing, like money, for example, and see it very differently. They can see the same object very differently. And Jesus describes this difference here in, in these two verses. If your eye is healthy, if it is good, your body is full of light. But if it is bad, your body will be full of darkness. Within the context, Jesus is discussing how the heart can be captivated through the eye. Again, this is not physiological, but figurative. Uh, when Jesus describes the healthy eye, the term he uses, as one commentator notes, points to the meaning singleness, a purpose, wholly dedicated to God along with a generosity of heart. So a healthy eye, Jesus says, is the eye that sees things from the perspective of the kingdom of heaven. It looks at these treasures, right, the treasures of this world, and sees them only as a means to an end. Resources to serve others and glorify God. Right? This kind of perspective results in good deeds done in the body, implied by Jesus' use of the word light, which biblically responds to moral goodness. Right? Conformity to God's character. You may be familiar with Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China in the 19th century. and Part of his labors there is he oversaw and helped run a hospital. Now, Hudson Taylor never liked to ask for money. He was against it by principle. Uh, and so his missions organization had promised they would send more money, but they didn't. And Hudson Taylor, again, was not one to ask. Finally, their supplies were getting so low, their money was so depleted, that all they had left was one bag of rice. One bag of rice for an entire hospital. And Hudson Taylor received a letter from a man back in England named William Berger. A letter containing 50 pounds, which in that day was thousands of dollars, right? Thousands of dollars. Now, Berger was a, an English merchant. He had no idea the situation Hudson Taylor was in, but his father had died and left him a very, very large inheritance. Now again, Berger knew nothing about this one bag of rice. But he had no interest in living a more wealthy life. He had no interest in expanding his estate. Berger, in his letter, simply said all he wanted to do was to use the money for the Lord's purpose, for the kingdom of God. And so he sent that to Hudson Taylor and said, hey, if, if you need more, I, I have more, I'd be happy to send you. William Berger's eye was good. It was healthy. Right? He received so much money and he looked at it not as, 
wow, I'm going to live it up, but rather, what can I do to serve God with this? Somebody else could look at the same cash and do something very different with it. That's what Jesus is describing here. And I know for a fact some of you have eyes like this. My family and I have, have been the recipients of your generosity in special ways in your regular giving, and we're deeply grateful. Now, in contrast, Jesus describes the other possibility in verse 23, an eye that is bad. Uh, this word is used to describe wickedness, sinfulness, evil. And it here, too, refers to the way that this eye, this person, sees the world around it. Instead of being generous, this eye sees things with greed, jealousy, selfishness regarding material things. This is what John describes in 1 John chapter 2. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the eye that desires the things of the world. It's unhealthy, it's bad from God's perspective. And if it is a worldly eye, it will not see things from a heavenly perspective. There's a, a new psychological, you know, psychological phenomenon called emotional spending. Emotional spending in which individuals buy material goods to make themselves feel better. Right? Oh, I'm depressed. Work didn't go good today. I'm going to buy that new, uh, that new shirt. Now I feel good because I have something new coming my way. Right? Um, we've all probably done that at one point or another. Right? We're feeling a little bummed pick up a new toy, I feel a little better for, for about that long, right? That's a purely self-centered motivation, isn't it, right? I'm going to buy this to make myself feel better. Earthly treasures for my own sake. A self-focused eye does not result in generosity for God's glory, but frivolous spending, hoarding, and stinginess, right? To preserve my own possessions. That's what it's all about. The character Ebenezer Scrooge from Christmas Carol is the perfect illustration of this, right? What did he love to do? He loved to sit at his desk and count his money and spend as little as possible on anyone else. Now, God warned the people of Israel against having such an eye in Deuteronomy 15. He says, if, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of the towns within your land the Lord's given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And then, and then uh, God says this, Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and every seven years all debts would be cleared, is what that refers to. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Right? That's what Jesus is referring to. My things are for me. I see that other person, and because my things are for me, because I see them from a worldly, selfish perspective, I'm going to see that person from a selfish, worldly perspective too, to look at them grudgingly and deny them the help God says I should give them. Right? That's what Jesus is describing here. And this, this, this kind of way of viewing the world leads to a moral darkness that is great. It overtakes a person's life. So again, Scrooge is a great example of this, right? He doesn't start out that way, but over time, he becomes the most miserly man in all of London. Right? How great the darkness is an unhealthy eye can bring into a person's life. And this is actually very relevant for us today in a number of ways. Did you know that the average person in America is exposed to between four and 10,000 advertisements a day? 4,000 to 10,000 advertisements a day on TV, on the radio, on billboards, magazines, social media, right? websites, apps. It's just constantly bombarded. 
And what do you think the number one goal of those advertisements is? It's not to help you live for the kingdom of heaven, for God's glory, right? It is to make you think that you're missing something you need and you need to buy, buy, buy. Use those dollars for you. You deserve it. But Jesus says the opposite of that. That's the water that we live in. That's the water of our culture. And we, we just imbibe it, and, and unconsciously so. Jesus says the opposite of what all these advertisements do. Through which lens does your eye see this world and the, the things in it? Right? When you look at material possessions, do you see them as a way to bless others or to bless yourself? Have you fallen into the trap of materialism that our culture celebrates? Right? Do you see the things God has given you as a way to glorify Him and advance His kingdom or as a way to advance your own? Ultimately, our, our treasure doesn't just reveal where our heart is at or how we see the world, but also our master, the one who we serve. Let's look at our next few verses. Oh, last verse, really. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Point number three, your treasure and your master. Prior to the Cold War, dual citizenship was, was really not allowed. It was not something that most countries did. Uh, the League of Nations, which is the forerunner to the UN, uh, they expressed this pretty well in a statement they put out in 1930. Uh, they said, all persons are entitled to possess one nationality, but one nationality only. Now, that's not the case today, right? There's many, many people with dual citizenship. Why was that the position then? Well, it was to avoid the problems faced by a conflict of interest when it came to military service, voting rights. A dual citizen could use their rights in one country to benefit the interests of another, right? For example, uh, some years ago, maybe not too many years ago, there was a, a Russian-U.S. dual citizen who was a double agent for Russia, right? Uh, we see the same thing uh, sometimes with, with other citizens, right? It just That's just what people do. It is difficult and in some cases impossible to serve two countries equally. And as Jesus says in verse 14, or verse 24, excuse me, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. This can be true with citizenship, but it is absolutely true when it comes to spiritual matters. Nobody can serve two masters, Jesus says, because you'll inevitably love one and hate the other, or vice versa. That's what James teaches us in James chapter 4. He says, do you not know what, uh, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's no gray area there. When it comes to spiritual matters, it is all or nothing. You either serve one master or the other. And now the two masters Jesus is talking about here are God and money. Literally, the term there is mammon. That's just material possessions in general. Let's think about what Jesus is saying here. First, one of the implications is you will serve somebody. Right? Nobody is truly a free person, right? Nobody is truly the dominating authority in their life. You will serve somebody. Second, when it comes to having a master, so to speak, it is not both and, it is either or. Uh, one commentator points out that people could not serve two masters in the way that people today work two jobs. It wasn't like that. As Jesus explained above, you'll really only be loyal to one master. You can really only belong to one. Money here is personified, of course, but what Jesus is saying is that you'll either live for God or you'll live for materialistic gain. 
but you can't do both. They're mutually exclusive. You cannot do both. And this brings us somewhat full circle to the beginning of our text. If you are concerned primarily with earthly treasures, you can't be concerned equally with heavenly treasures. Right? You're serving money, not God. You're serving yourself, not God. Now, if you're storing up heavenly treasures and generously using what God has given you to benefit others and glorify Him, you are serving God. And your desire for earthly things will not be top of the list. There's a big difference between serving these two masters, God and money. It has very big impacts on your life. If you serve money, or if you serve anything besides God for that matter, your life will be marked by dissatisfaction with what you have or don't have. You'll be consumed by anxiety over not having what you think you need or want. You'll be jealous of what other people have. A life focused on having more stuff or having more money is a life that is never at peace and is never satisfied because there's always more to be had. And when we get to the next portion of chapter 6 in a few weeks, Jesus is going to emphasize that very heavily. A life consumed with earthly things will be marked by anxiety and unrest. That always demands more. But if you serve God as your master, the Bible promises you'll have love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. To serve God as your master, as a disciple of Jesus, is to serve the one who is merciful and gracious, the one who can give you true rest, not the one who says more, 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 and more, but the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The one who created everything. He is more than able to provide for what you need. He is a much better master than money because he loves you. He cares for you. Your life reveals who your master is. Your treasure reveals who your master is. What do you think your life says? Do you think more about your anxieties over finances than about God's faithfulness? Do you think more about what you want than being thankful for what God has given you? Do you desire to get the latest and greatest or do you discern opportunities to generously serve God and others? As Joshua prepared to lead the Israelites into Canaan, he put before them a decision. He said, choose this day whom you will serve. Right? The true God or anyone else. And in effect, Jesus is putting the same decision before each one of us today. Who will your master be? God? Money? What treasure will you seek? Heavenly treasure? Earthly treasure? Will you be like those Vikings who amassed great wealth and buried it only to die and leave it behind for some Swedish archaeologists? Or will you seek to live a life of eternal significance, storing up true wealth in heaven through good works that glorify God? That is the question Jesus puts before each one of us today. Let us pray as we prepare for communion. Our Lord and our God, you are an abundantly generous and gracious God. Father, you prove your faithfulness so often, and you truly do provide for the needs of your people. 
Father, we pray for your help. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see things as you do. That we would have that heavenly perspective Jesus describes for us today. That we would value those things that you value. Good works that glorify you. Father, would you help us to use what you've given us for that purpose? Because, Lord, in reality, there is so much joy in doing so. So much peace in having that blessed detachment to the things of this world. Seeing them as tools to bring honor to your name. So help us, Lord, to examine our lives. Help us to examine our hearts. To examine our eyes. And would you lead us in uh, paths of righteousness, Lord. That we may do in this life what pleases you. And Father, in those ways that we have failed, where we maybe have been self-centered or selfish or have focused too much on laying up earthly treasures, we pray you'd forgive us. And we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who served you faithfully every second of his life, who had no place to lay his head, but who is sitting at your right hand in glory now. Lord, we thank you for him and for his righteousness given to us. In his name we pray. Amen.